Welcome to The View From The North Curve, a podcast covering all things North Curve Celtic. I'm your host Kev. Big thanks everyone again for tuning in to us. I hope we're all good. I hope we're all keeping well. We are back with you for this episode where we'll be continuing on with the wee series that we've been doing in the 40th anniversary year of the 1981 hunger strikes. We've previously been on and we spoke with Tommy McKearney, we spoke with Tony O'Hara and we spoke with Tommy McCourt. Uh, if you've not given any math a listen yet, you really should because they were brilliant listening to all three of the guys speaking and we're pleased to be back with you this time around. Our guest we now have is Jim Slaven. Jim was born and he was brought up in Edinburgh and he spent his whole life in the city. He's one of the founding members of the James Conley Society which this year is celebrating its 35th anniversary. Jim's been involved in socialist, republican and working class politics in Edinburgh and in Scotland and Ireland for more than 30 years. Through the James Conley Society he helped organise marches very often against the state. He's also organised educational events, including recently to honour Edinburgh's finest son. Throughout the years, Jim's been involved with Cardsnairn, 1916 Societies, and also Helping Hands, the organisation that he founded with Bradley Welsh that brought football training, boxing training, Meals during lockdown, free breakfast and bike clubs to the working class communities through Edinburgh. He's currently involved with the James Conley Society website and the James Conley Book Club to bring the life and the works of James Conley to the fore. He's also involved with the Edinburgh Detours, where he does tours of Edinburgh's social and architectural landscape that affects the working class people of the city. It is a privilege to welcome Jim Slaven onto the podcast. Thanks very much. Thanks for that. Uh, makes me seem old. Like when we talk with Connolly Society, the 35th anniversary is still a bit difficult for us to get our head around. Like, but what I'm going to do is maybe a bit different from what you have heard in the, the other two contributions that um, have been people for Ireland talking about the impact area. So I want to just mention maybe a bit about the hunger strikes as. It impacted on me and the people around about me, so a, a Scottish perspective. And I think I'll talk a little bit about how it affected me and how it then played a role in my political development, but also the founding of the Conley Society and the development of the Republican movement, Solidarity Network in the 1980s, the role of the hunger strike played as a sort of catalyst for that change or development that happened. And... Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit, take it up to about the 10th anniversary, about 91, the early 90s, which was an important period in that in that process. And then we can open it up for, that'll probably be enough for everybody, we can open it up for questions and uh, and uh, discussion. And if there's anything I didn't mention in here, as you see, I've been involved in a whole load of different uh, activities and organisations over the years. If there's anything I didn't mention, it's no because I don't want to mention it, people can ask me a question about anything they like, like I'm quite chilled about that. So first, I suppose, in terms of the, the hunger strikes, I should say a bit about my background. I was 11 during the hunger strikes, so that sort of puts me at that age where I'm just about to go to secondary school, 
I'm um, just becoming sort of aware of different things that are going on around about me politically, socially. Uh, there's been all the different types of sort of stuff happened during the first hunger strike. So you're sort of aware of that. My family background, my father's family, Irish Catholics. My mother's family is half Irish Catholic and uh, half Protestant. So my mother's a Protestant, dad's Catholic. I go to a Protestant school. My sister goes to a Catholic school a bit later. She's a bit younger. So um, so that gives you a sort of sense of where I am in the sense that we're living in a housing scheme on the outskirts of Edinburgh, mixed area, a lot of Irish Catholics like my father and his family, his friends. We've all been decanted at that period in the sort of mid-70s. They had a clear out of the old town and they built all these uh, Catholic primary schools and the housing schemes on the on the margins of Edinburgh and they moved families like mine out there. So it was better housing conditions. We we had like inside toilets, a garden, that type of thing. But of course then it broke up communities, it broke up networks, uh, solidarity and support. So it was a sort of, even though I was too young to appreciate that, there was a whole lot of change going on and uh, my family had been taken, like all the others, feel it I wanted to put into a very sort of uh, different environment, removed geographically, but also uh, socially and, and I suppose ethnically as well, in terms of what, what my family had been used to, having lived in the Cowgate uh, since I came to Edinburgh like 100 years previous. So... Um, so that was that was the sort of the the background in the sense that it's a mixed community. That's the point I'm trying to make. That it's a very sort of a mixed environment, and the hunger strikes in in so many ways brung all of those sort of things that were under the surface, the divisions that were under the surface, particularly in Edinburgh. I suppose they were they were definitely there, but they maybe only as out there. In, in the same way as there in other parts of Scotland. But the hunger strike was one of the moments where it was just impossible to keep a lid on it. Um, so even for like my friends at school, the ones who were uh, for the same community as me, we all had solidarity with the, the hunger strikers. We were all singing songs about hunger strikers rebel songs, wearing badges and supporting them. We all wanted to know what was happening for older people in the community. And of course, there was all the other people in the community who were maybe the British Army, military families, backgrounds, and who were incredibly hostile, and of course, loyalists as well, but who were incredibly hostile. So it was one of the, the periods where political education just had to happen. You had to, you had to make a an effort to figure out exactly what was going on because you were being challenged on a regular basis, even as a kid, about why you were saying this or why you were supporting that. Um, so it was a really, really fascinating, but I suppose at the time, really strange period because a lot of adults didn't want to talk about it as well. A lot of adults were really like saying, you know, no good's got to come with us for young youngsters um, going around singing rebel songs and what have you in, in such an environment. So it was an interesting time because we couldn't really figure that out either. It was just a sort of emotional thing rather than us having any politics. It was just an emotional connection that we thought we had with the hunger strikers that we were on their side and against the side of the, of the UK state without really thinking that through theoretically like. And the other thing I think that is worth mentioning, I don't know, I can't see everybody, so I don't know the age of people who are who are here, but um as I say, I'm a wee bit older. And the thing about the hunger strikes, which remember which I remember so much, which is totally different than it would be now, is that it was on the news. And when it was on the news, there was like three channels. So everybody watched the same news. There wasn't any social media, internet, anything like that. People watched the news and it was on the news, and that's where people got the same information. 
and people then discussed that. That's what people did. And that made it a it made it a sort of communal experience, no matter what your views of it were. Everybody was aware of it. Everybody knew exactly what was happening day to day. And especially as then the hunger strikers started to die, it became more and more the main subject that was being um, discussed and argued over and fought over and all these different things. And so another thing I think it's important to say about the, the impact it has on you is that the hunger strikes was one of the events which stuck with us for a young age. And I've often said that the James Collins Society is part of the hunger strike generation, even although we weren't founded until uh, 1986 was the first James Conley march. So we're no, we didn't come into existence as a, as a sort of organisation and as an organised group until 1986. But I do think we are part of that hunger strike generation because most of us were around the same age. So we were young, we'd been at, at school during the time of the hunger strike. And by the mid 80s, we'll leave uh, school and we want to get ourselves organised. Most of us just had one thought in our head. When I left school in 1986, the only thing I had in my head was we want to get to Belfast. You want to get to Belfast. You want to offer solidarity. You want to get involved in public and politics. And that was directly connected to the impact of the hunger strike had on us. It wasn't to do with anything else. It was to do with the impact of the hunger strikes, definitely. And you can see that because that was a marked break in Edinburgh and in, in other areas as well. Obviously, traditionally, there had been solidarity in uh, Glasgow and different parts of Lanarkshire, there had been a history, flute bands and what have you. In Edinburgh, there was none of that. In Edinburgh, any attempt to organise around the Irish question in the 1970s was mostly by uh, far-left groups, mostly by sort of small left-wing groups, and it had been physically smashed by the cops or by loyalists. They had just had no truck with it at all. They didn't want it to exist in Edinburgh at all. Uh, the loyalists used to describe Edinburgh in the 1980s as being the jewel in the crown because they completely dominated the place. Even although historically Little Island had been right in the centre of the town, the loyalists controlled almost the whole of the, the city. And what I mean by that is not only did they march wherever they liked, whenever they liked, unhindered, the um, just in terms of the sort of social aspect of the city as well, you know, you always hear stories. People tell stories of you know Hibs and Celtic fans having to hide their scarves. There wasn't any traditional Celtic bars or any Irish in Edinburgh in the eighties. There wasn't any Irish bars, um, so you get a real sense in which the, the power of the loyalists and that sort of hostility to there being any established visibility of the Irish community. There was an Irish community there, but it was very fragmented and dissipated throughout the city in a way which is very different for like say Dundee or uh, Glasgow or what have you. And the hunger strikes completely transformed that in a way that probably nobody really could have anticipated at the time. Any attempt in 1981 to organise around the hunger strikes was again by small left-wing groups and again the loyalists just smashed them. But by the time we get to the stage in 1986, we have not only been young people politicised by the hunger strikes, but it's it's also, I think, important to remember the, the context of what follows the hunger strikes politically. So you have 81, we have the hunger strike. We're young. By that stage, we're, we're talking about politics. We're interested in politics, whether we fully understand it or not. Then you have the Falklands War. The Falklands War in, in 82 is a massive thing in the uh, and certainly in, in Edinburgh, it was a big, I'm sure it was the same in the other areas, where you had like total news coverage here, but also you had people then having bunting when soldiers were coming back for the Falklands and what have you. And that was a massive 
problem for the likes of myself and for other people who are young. Probably seem to say a lot of people in the community being just a little bit too uh, provocative or whatever. But we weren't. Uh, we were very, very keen by that stage to make it clear that we were uh, opposed to the British and Falklands and opposed to British soldiers and and coming back to the community. So that would have been a, a big, big issue as well. Then, of course, you have um, eighty four. We have the minor strike, and the school I went to at the time, the. National Union miners used to they used to have their pickets at the headquarters of the, the coal board, which was literally at the bottom of the drive of the school. So we would go down at lunchtime and give the striking miners their, uh, their dinner money and throw things at the cars, cars going into the offices and what have you. So you had that. We then have, of course, we've got the Brighton bombing. So there's a whole lot going on there before you get to 86. And we've had like a steady process of politicization for people like myself and others who went on to form the Conley Society. And, and I should say as well that this is, a, I'm talking about Edinburgh because that's where I've got involvement in. This was happening all over the place. I mean, the, the impact of the hunger strikes on the Irish diaspora outside a, Island, but also the point is in Scotland in particular, it was a huge event and transformative in the way that we then went around engaging in political activity. And um, and I, I suppose we've no we've no because because that process is probably still going on, we've no quite had the opportunity to pause and reflect on that totally, I don't think. And um maybe the 40th anniversary will be a good opportunity for us to do that as well. So and the, so the, the, we're taking we're talking there now. I'm saying about eighty six. We're young. We're keen to organise around about James Conley in Edinburgh. But for the very beginning, the Conley Society had a very clear division of what we were trying to do. We're on one hand, we were trying to re-establish the the sort of legitimacy of celebrating Conley's life in the city's birth. But the big part was about offering solidarity. And we phrased that round about offering solidarity with the risen people of Ireland. There had been a lot of activity at that stage round about prisoners, um, again, which would be on the back of, of the prison struggle and the, the hunger strikes. And we were at that point then tying into a, a network of political activity that was going on across Scotland. So there's the flute bands. As I say, there was always this network of small left-wing groups trying to organise around about Ireland as well. And... The Collins Society's position was slightly a, a bit different because Edinburgh is a very different city than, than Glasgow. So we always had this sort of strange situation. We had a flute band, the Rising Phoenix, which had been founded in 1984 and was was a catalyst for the first march in 86. But the, the, the band was never very strong and it certainly wasn't a dominant factor in anything that was happening in Edinburgh. But we had a march, and now we had a march. We were really like determined that we were going to make it as big as we could. Also, because it was a capital city, we were really keen to make sure that we got a foothold in the city centre, which again was was a sort of different approach than what had been taking place previous, where bands tended to march in their areas. There was a lot of people. It was band band parades were were something that local communities came out and supported. And um, there was that sort of tradition. In Edinburgh, there was nothing like that. So we thought, no, we'll place it in the city centre. We'll make it explicitly about James Connolly. We'll make it explicitly political, as opposed to saying, oh, it's a community march or it's just a band parade or something. We were like, no, that's not happening. People are coming out to watch bands. People are going to be participating in the march. There's going to be 
marchers, there's going to be speakers, it's going to be like the Miners Gala or like an anti-war demo or anything like that. And that created certain uh, tensions and, and problems, I think, and uh, internally as well as as well as anything else. But certainly for the for the the state's response to it, that was a big challenge for them. And Again, just to talk about Edinburgh, but this does apply elsewhere as well. What you had in the 1980s after the hunger strikes was a huge influx of people in Scotland wanting to get involved in Irish Republican activity because of the hunger strikes. People had been politicised. People were determined that after the sacrifice that had been made, it was time for people to stand up, to offer solidarity, to get a shoulder to the wheel, to do what they could to raise awareness of what was happening in Ireland. And that was um, a, a lot of people coming in a lot of young people coming in, a lot of young people with different ideas coming in. And that was a real test because the there wasn't a structure in place to really deal with that. That's the truth of the matter. And the Republican movement sort of struggled to try and put uh, an infrastructure in place for the, for the mid-80s, really, you could argue right through. Like they really they struggled to try and get something which would, which would have brought everybody in to one structure with one sort of political ideology and strategy, but encompassing so many different um, different types of different types of people, different types of group, different motivations, and so that was a real tension that we as young guys were just flung in the middle. Of. We didn't really realise or understand any of that that was going on. To be perfectly honest, but then became a big part of that whole sort of discussion because what we were wanting to do was something which was seen as being. Uh, different but also seen for a lot of people seen it as being quite provocative and quite something that could be quite damaging for other bands parades for instance they've seen that the Conway Society parade was getting so much negative attention for loyalists and for the cops that the concern was that they would turn their attention into other parades as well now our position on that was and this was very much because of it being the generation of the, that we're talking about the hunger strike generation our position and and i think it was correct our position at the time was that if we took one backward step the loyalists would wipe us out completely like they had done previous to anybody trying to organize but we also thought that we were a test case in many ways that if the cops and the loyalists managed to end the Connolly march then they would turn their attention to other marches that were a lot more vulnerable than ours by that stage but that was a sort of discussion that people had. And again, to put it in the, the context the, the when we're talking about, you're talking about a period of, like, say, Lockall, Gibraltar, by the early 90s, by the time you get to 1990 and 1991, which is where it sort of began to come to a head in Edinburgh, you're talking about, like, Downing Street bombing, you're talking about a campaign in England. There's a whole number of things that are just going on all the time, which make any type of organising incredibly difficult. There's a whole lot of different pressures on people. The nature of solidarity is it's about, you know, finance, it's about all kinds of different support that people can give. And it, it's all incredibly challenging in Scotland anyway in that period. And then you have this whole issue blown up about, um, about marches and parades and and how you deal with that. For us, our view very much was, this was a process of politicization. Even at the time, I remember saying to people, we were under a hell of a lot of pressure uh, and, and pressure as well. I mean, I'm, I'm not getting any secrets away to, to say it for a long period of time, like Sinn Féin even were saying, you know, you need to knock that on the head. Like, this is, this is too much, this is really no good. Like, But 
I mean, for us, it was very much about thinking this is a learning curve here. Do you know what I mean? We're we're when you're in the trenches like that, you look around, you see who's with you. You have a very clear understanding that you need to come up with solutions quickly, and uh, you learn a lot about your politics and about about um, how much you're committed to it or not. And I think that stood us in, in good stead. The the other, I think, in terms of the hunger strikes, the, the reason I think it's so significant for Edinburgh and the Congress Society as well is, as I say, 1990-91 is when things began to really get a bit messy. Like, it began to get a bit messy. The IRA had killed a few Scottish soldiers and so on so far, Ma, and there had been attacks in Germany as well. And a few of the families were for Edinburgh and there was a whole lot of pressure on it. And in 1990, the, the march got moved, if anybody's old enough to remember, the march got moved from the city centre to Leith and marched in Leith, uh, down Easter Road into Leith Links. And, I mean, it was fine. Do you know what I mean? It was fine. It was a perfect route for a march. It was all right. But there was a whole lot of us, again, younger ones, who were just like, this isn't right. Like, this is a problem. Strategically, this is a mistake because we are getting moved out of the city centre where we want to be. We're going to end up moved back to a housing scheme, which is where it began in 86. And that, and again, a lot of people in, in like the bands, for instance, were saying, what's the problem with that? You know what I mean? A lot of marches are in schemes, what's the difficulty? But we thought, actually, wait a second. Like, we didn't, if we get ourselves back in a scheme in Edinburgh, it's going to be really, really difficult to defend physically, but also politically. It needs to be in the city centre. We need to make sure that this is a... This is a process whereby we're educating people in the city centre about why we're doing this, about who Conley is, about what's happening in Ireland. That isn't going to happen if we are stuck in a housing scheme on a Saturday morning and nobody even knows we're there. So by 1991, we had uh, decided we weren't going to have it. We moved back to the city centre and we refused to move. Now, the reason that's interesting is because obviously that's the 10th anniversary of the hunger strikes. So there was a lot of activity going on around about the 10th anniversary of the hunger strikes. There was a lot of support and solidarity around about that. And um, if people can remember, the uh, IRA prisoners were beginning to get sort of um, temporary releases and what have you, and a lot of the ones who'd been involved. So there was a whole lot of different things that were happening around about the hunger strike in 1991, which fed into the organising of the Conley March. We were also arranging uh, other events in Edinburgh in about the 10th anniversary of the hunger strike. And so it, it almost all came to a perfect head in the sense that we felt that was the best opportunity we would have to stand our ground. And clearly, I think uh, the state decided that probably that was the moment they should try and physically remove us as they had done, as I said previously. So the 91 Conley March was probably, I said this on a Facebook post now, it's probably the biggest political violence I've seen in centre of Edinburgh. Um, I can't think of anything I've seen since or, or previously, to be honest with you. Like, we we didn't really fully understand what was happening. I was I was a permit holder, I, so I was in, at June now, I was 20. And uh, the, the thing we realised in the run-up to it, and as I say, people... It's, it's difficult to explain only because there was so much happening. There was We were trying to send people to Ireland for IRA funerals that same week. There was a whole lot of different things happening. With the city chambers booked for a, a hunger strike 10th anniversary commemoration, we were trying to deal with that. And then all of a sudden we're in the middle of this week where we're going to have the Conley March back in the city centre. And I remember at the time, the only thing that struck us as odd is the council kept changing the conditions of the, of the march, which was really unusual. And then about two or three days before it, they, they phoned me and said, 
oh, you, you know, we've got to send you a letter and it's got new conditions and you, you need to sign it. Like, or it can't happen. And I remember thinking it was a bit odd, but they sent somebody to my door. I signed it and they said, no, you need to read it and sign it and return it and the rest of it. And we looked over and what they changed is they'd said that if for any reason the march stops before it reaches its end point, the police have the power to end it completely. That's it finished. And I mind we were we discussed that at the time, thought they're a bit mad, like they must think we're going to have a sit-down protest or something. And we didn't really fully like grasp what was going on. And uh, but I remember we did have a, a discussion and we thought actually we maybe better put some extra precautions in place, should I put it like that? We, so we went and spoke to some people who maybe wouldn't have bothered coming to a political march but we're definitely supportive of what we were doing. And uh, we went to them and said, look, we're going to need a few bodies here for stewarding because again, there's something not quite right here. This could be a problem. And uh, and just as well we did, a lot of the older people we were involved with us in the days run up to said, oh, I can't make it, I've got to work or whatever. And again, that was a wee bit unusual and a bit surprising. But by the time we got there in 1991, doing on the day, there was... I mean, hundreds and hundreds of loyalists and fascists in the grass market. The police had allowed them all to gather right along the grass market. There's pictures um, people can find on the internet of them. Combi 18, it turned out, had run a bus for London. Uh, the guy who'd run the bus was later out. He'd just been a, a, an informer. So it was clearly like the state was doing that for him. And uh, the, there was also loyalists for Belfast and other bits in the north as well that were there. So there are hundreds of these people all were like, Gone completely crazy, and at the and when we started the the parade, I remember like it was yesterday. The the, the senior cop said to me, "Have you you've read the new conditions?" I agreed to him. I said, "Aye." And he says, "So when this march, if it doesn't get to the end, that's it finished. It's never happening again." And I, I can remember from like thinking, "Can these people on the right like?" But they obviously thought we were just going to like bow down, or we were just going to like take it. But by the time we got through the grass market, the police partied and let the loyalists through to attack the front of the, the march. But that's where we had the stewards. So it was just all out um, chaos, really. And I remember all we were saying to everybody was just keep moving, just keep moving. So we managed to keep all the bands and the people as much as we could, keep them moving forward. So the march continued. And uh, and we sort of left the stewards to, to deal with it, if you know what I mean. And um, and so we did get to the end of it. And I remember the cops were in complete disarray, completely like uh, up in arms about the whole thing. And it was after that that they introduced the state ban. They obviously figured out they couldn't move us to the city centre. They couldn't physically stop us. The loyalists weren't up to that. So then they introduced the state ban in 92 and 93, which we eventually got overturned. Another thing you say about 91 that's important for what we're talking about, the hunger strikes, is we did have that city chambers booked for a 10th anniversary commemoration. And uh, and that went ahead. And there was a whole protest around that. There was a whole numerous attempts to cancel the booking for the council. Obviously, but we booked it on the contract. So uh, we had to let it go ahead on a Sunday morning. It was actually the day after my 21st. And I got, we were out on the night of my 21st, a Saturday night, and this is not much to do with it, but I got arrested on the night of my 21st with the cops because we, we just got arrested all the time. And then I go in the morning and we had to go and I was chairing that meeting. But I remember in the morning, the cops were coming around saying, who's the Sinn Féin speaker? Who's the Sinn Féin speaker? We need more information. There's got to be a counter demonstration. And just for a laugh, because we were a bit pissed off with what had happened the night before, we were saying, Mark McGuinness is, is a Sinn Féin speaker. And the, the cops who were like completely like thrown by the whole thing. Like they didn't know what to do with themselves at all. 
But the whole um, the whole the whole thing went ahead. There was a protest, but as I said, there was protests around about that all the time. So that just gives people a sort of sense of the significance of a hunger strikes for us, but I think it shouldn't be underestimated the 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 significance of it for loyalists as well in terms of them organising around about those events to try and stop them. And that's continued since as well. The hunger strikes is one of the things which, strangely, in the sense of, oh, so I, you often hear loyalist prisoners talking about the benefits that they got for the prison struggle and what have you, the Republicans. But in Scotland, the loyalists really sort of focused on the hunger strikes. Certainly in the early days, that was one of the things. They recognised that as being a big sort of mobilising factor for us. And they uh, recognised, I think, that they needed to mobilise against that. So quite often, anything we had around about the prison issue and hunger strikes, or if we had ex-hunger strikers over speaking, that would have been the catalyst for for uh, some of the larger loyalist turnouts that we had. So it's, I think, it's important to to remember that as well because it did sort of transform the landscape politically in Scotland for Republicans. Um. In terms of just for opening up to questions and and discussions, I mean, I think it is worth contemplating the politics here in the sense that there isn't any question during that whole period I'm talking about for the 80s, early 90s, that our view very much was that the hunger strikes was about the struggle. It was about the war. They were soldiers. And it was about revolutionary republicanism. It was a war of national liberation. All these type of, all these type of sort of political ideas were what drove us on. And I say that because the 40th anniversary were in a very different place politically. And I think there's a whole number of questions for Republicans around about that. Um, for lawyers, lawyers in Scotland, I don't mean just one group or a different group. I mean for lawyers, like we're in a very, very different place. So, in the sense that that was a really difficult time in the eighties and nineties, uh, it also, in some ways, was a huge opportunity that we maybe missed in the sense of political education, in the sense of making sure that those ideas sort of percolated through our community. Um, because we now talk about we're, we're obviously there's a whole lot of stuff going on now with the anti-Irish racism um, and of course with a national question with a referendum coming up and sometimes you think actually Republicans would have been much better placed to have made a positive intervention there during that period no matter how difficult it was during the war where we at least were coalescing around certain sort of very firm political ideals Rather than now, it's much more difficult, I think, to to see a sort of positive Republican contribution to that, other than individually or small groups or what have you. But there isn't a sort of a coherent voice um, arguing a Republican position on that. It's, it's very difficult. But in some ways, I suppose there is a lot of progress. And when we got the March School Band in 92, I remember it really well. We got banned in 92. We had a big argument in the city chambers with the council about it. And it was the first time we raised the issue anti-Irish racism. And I can remember the outrage uh, about using anti-Irish racism. The There was only, I think, one Asian councillor on the committee. And he was the most outraged. Like He said it was absolutely shocking that we should be talking about racism and do not racism and not do it. And the council was really, but in hindsight, they were really sort of concerned by it. They didn't, they really were worried about that accusation. And we raised that consistently all the way through, which led us into the, the discussions we had with the government about the 
Section 74 stuff, and then later on about the summits on sectarianism and all of that type of thing. That all stemmed from the fact that the Congress Society had been talking about anti-Irish racism since 1992. And one of the issues that we came across was people in our own community who were just like, I don't care what you're talking about, like, you know, there's a, there's a whole lot of problems, but it's no racism. You shouldn't be saying it's racism. It's it's today with the football, it's today with religion, or it's the, but you shouldn't be messing, you shouldn't be mentioning it in the same sort of way as you would talk about other racisms. And uh, so clearly we've come a long way since then, and we can see that the response to the recent stuff has been accepting that there is a problem with anti-Irish racism. And it is Scotland's problem. It isn't imported for anywhere else. It's today with Scotland and Scottishness. Um, so that's a step in the right direction. Jim, big, big thanks, mate, for taking the time to come on and speak with us. We have some questions here from the boys and girls within our North Curve that I'm going to be putting to you so I can start off with this wee one that I've got. Jim, you spoke about educating yourself from an early age. It feels that the politics and the history that you learn in school doesn't provide enough to educate yourself. How important from you know your perspective do you feel that it is important to educate yourself early on a vast array of politics? No, absolutely. I think it's it's, it's absolutely vital. That is it. Like political education is one of the biggest things that we would be always sort of push in. And we've never really got it right, to be honest, with the Congress Society or with Carja. We never ever really got it right. Like and, and Sinn Fein as well. Sinn Fein also had a political education department, but it was always sort of an afterthought. It was never really something that was coherent. And that's maybe the same with other parties as well. Like, but I think it's um it, it's turned out to be a really missed opportunity because one of the things in the one of the things that I've learned was I always assumed in the 1980s or early 90s or for a long time after that probably that everybody who said they were a Republican and was involved in Republican politics was a Republican. Now, it clearly turns out that's not the case. There's a whole lot of people who are nationalists or they're motivated by different things. And that doesn't make them bad people. But we needed, I think, much more effort to be educating ourselves and everybody else about some fundamentals to make sure people did have that sort of ideological framework around what are the central tenets of Republicanism. For instance, like if you look at stuff like sectarianism, there's a whole lot of stuff that goes on that you think actually, you know, and even you think in a community basis, you might think that's all right, but it's no Republican. Do you know, there's a a particular Republican way. We used to always say, it's not enough to say we're no Republican. We need to be anti, we're no uh, sectarian. We need to be anti-sectarian. And that has been something which has been really difficult. And you can see that, You can, I think you can see that in terms of how Republicanism is fragmented, that there is less and less evidence, I think, of that political education, the people developing that understanding on some of these basic things. And that has a real impact strategically on how we, how we work in terms of how it is we're trying to build, what is it we're trying to do, what is the target audience for the work that we're doing. That all comes from making sure that people have a good education about the politics, but also about strategy. What is it we're doing? Why are we doing this? How does it fit in with everything else that we're doing? There doesn't necessarily seem to be a lot of that. And, but that is a, a, I would say that is a criticism that Congress that could make ourselves, that we could make a whole lot of different organisations on the left or Republicans or whatever. Uh, is it's not quite taken seriously enough in terms of sometimes there's like oh, reading books or whatever ah, you go read books but you have to have a discussion about it. people have to understand how that theory then impacts 
own strategy? How does that impact on the activity we're doing on the ground? Like, how does it make a difference? How do we make Connolly, for example, relevant to people on the scheme? How do we do that today? Like, there, there may be no interest in 1960. How do we make his politics relevant today? And that is a long process, but it's absolutely vital. I think we're through it. Sometimes we're just like groping about in the dark, like really. We have a, another question here, Jim, relating to politics and football, as these often go together. And, and obviously you're a Hibs fan yourself, but did you ever try to, you know, promote your politics through the football and, and take those on to the terraces type thing? Yeah, no, definitely. Football was one of the big things that we would have uh, targeted, to be honest with you. And we tried to do it a, a few different ways. And the Celtic, obviously the Celtics were like, was like a massive target audience for us to make sure that we got. So we would all often do things like we fought in or if we were doing magazines or whatever, we always done different things over the years and uh, making sure that we're at the football games was a big part of it. In terms of Edinburgh, we'd done a lot of work with Hibs fans and Hearts fans, most of much with Hearts fans, but we did have Hearts fans on board with it. We tried to do uh, stuff about anti-racism and a big part of it was anti-racism and that was was about we went and we footed at uh, Hearts games and Hibs games saying actually you know what's happening here with the ban of the Colin March because anti-Irish racism it's about um, our community being discriminated blah blah and it actually it sort of knocked people off a bit people weren't I mean Hibs fans were quite receptive to it on the whole but the Hearts fans didn't really quite know how to take it like they just didn't they were obviously instinctively hostile to the idea but um we just thought it was a different way of coming at them. And, I mean, it worked. But, again, we probably should have sustained it in a much longer term because what happened is you tend to do that and then the reaction that, that comes from the loyalists in terms of them organising against that, by that time, we're already away. Do you know, we've done it. Like, we've done it for a few weeks, few games, whatever. But they then had a, a longer run at countering that and it probably, in some way, maybe even give them a wee boost in terms of getting them back, organising them about Hearts games. Uh, Hibs, the other thing about is uh, Hibs, we actually, when the march was banned, I think it might be 91 actually, but when the, or maybe so it was before the march was banned, we wrote to Hibs saying, you know, James Collins was a, was a Hibs fan or the rest of it. Do you know what I support the Conway march like? I can remember they wrote back saying, not a chance, like, are you mad? For so <laughs> that was uh, the answer for them. Like, no, I've still got the letters of them. You'd spoken, Jim, about left-wing groups pushing the Republican question. Do you think that that's still the script in, you know, today's society? Or do you think that left-wing groups maybe don't do enough today? Or are not necessarily groups that are outward Republican, but they do enough to push the Republican question? Well... I mean, I probably have a bit of a negative attitude to them, although, you know, something nice folk in that. But I mean, see, during, during the periods that we're talking about, the Conley March, most difficult years, the left were like, nowhere to be seen, like, they didn't want to know. Right? So, I mean, and I have a sort of issue with that, I suppose. You know, I mean, they didn't consider us part of the left then, but now they want our support for different things. And I think actually, you know, that's not how solidarity works. Like, it has to be mutual. And when the loyalists were coming to our doors or we were getting hauled off by the cops, the left were not only nowhere to be seen, but a lot of the time they were saying it was our own fault or we were just as bad as oilists or we were all thugs or sectarians or whatever it was, just because really they were mostly cowards and they didn't want to stand up to the to the loyalists and the fascists, in my opinion. In terms of, if I try and put that to one side, and the, the, what I would say is that 
the left is really weak and they are really ineffectual. They're really disconnected to the working class. So I'm not even sure how much value there is having them supporting anything. But during the Scottish independence referendum, we, the Common Society, support the campaign for an all-island referendum. And so we wrote to, I think we wrote to all the MSPs and politicians saying, do you, you know, Scotland scored the right to a referendum. Um, do you agree Ireland should have the same right? You know, a sort of peaceful way of resolving this conflict. Um, and some of the MP, MSPs and MPs replied, all of you. But we asked the Radical Independence Campaign, who I'd spoke at a couple of meetings, we'd had a few members who had been at their events. And so we wrote to them and said, look, they were sort of the biggest sort of left-wing group, pro-independence, then, then work around about the question of referendum. So we said to them, look, you're supporting the right of Scottish people to national self-determination. Surely you would accept that that principle applies to Ireland as well. So you'll support that in the same way as you're vocal in supporting Catalonia, for instance. And they just wouldn't do it. They just wouldn't do it. They, they, they wouldn't do it. They just wouldn't take a position on Ireland. And... They kept saying they were going to. We're going to. We'll definitely. We're well, no problem. And, and I believe them individually, they probably all agree. You know, I mean, it wasn't like they were against it. But for whatever reason, whether it was because the official yes campaign were telling them not to, or they thought it might jeopardize opportunities for them to share a platform with SNP people, or whatever it was. They did, and to me, what is the point of having these left wing groups organizing as if they'd be as well in the SNP if I've just got to agree with them all the time? So I think that's why it's important that there is organisations uh, like ourselves who support independence, have always supported independence, but we're also very clear that we're consistent, that that must apply to people of Ireland as well. Like, And it's a bit, uh, to me, it's like a basic test for the left. Like, if you can't support that, and I didn't even just tell them that privately you support it, I mean, as the organisation, can he come out and say that the Irish people have the same right to determine their future without outside interference or impediment. If you can't say that, then what is the point? Like revolutionary socialists, kind of stuff. They're not to be taken seriously. Like one of the other things to say about that is one of the things that when 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 the common society was having all these debates, because we used to say to the left, you know, you need to come. You know, there's got like our events were always the biggest turnout of fascist organisations. Like I mean, so like the BNP, Combat 18, they always turned out. So we always needed bodies for security. We always were concerned that if we didn't get a turnout, we would be turned over physically, and that was a real and it was a real concern because it could have happened. So we always made an attempt to get these left wing groups on board and say, look, he's, even if he's not agree with everything, or, and and it was clear to me, because they used to say, oh, it's because of the IRA or something, you know, it's because of this or something. But it was very clear quickly that it wasn't really about the IRA, like. And, and it wouldn't have made any difference. So when the IRA ceasefires came, I always said, there'll be no peace dividend for us in Scotland because we'll still be Fenians. And they, they, that was something. And the other thing about the left is, most of the people running these organisations didn't live in housing schemes. They didn't have much knowledge of housing schemes. The common society, we all came for housing schemes. We all live in housing schemes. So when we went to meet them, you could tell there was definitely a class issue as well. Like, that they really, they did view us as thugs. They did view us as people who were just like loyalists because we probably came from the same sort of areas. They all went to university together. They all went to dinner parties together. They, they weren't the type of people who understood at all where we were coming from and why we were so determined to stand our ground physically. And so that class thing is really a big issue, I think. And I think that's one of the undoings of the left. Like, that's why they are so weak, because 
they are only based on working class communities. Jim, just to take it back to the time of the actual hunger strikes, how do you remember it being reported in the news and the TV and, you know, how did that influence your support for Irish republicanism? I think one of the things that, the, the thing I remember was how hostile they were and the interesting thing, I suppose, because of the background I came from, like in the house, my dad would be saying, you know, I mean, he would be supporting the hunger strikers and he would be saying that's a whole lot of nonsense what they're saying. And, you know, he would be always giving the sort of counter view. And it also fed into a sense that, I mean, even at a young age like that, we thought the IRA was our army. I mean, I never, nobody in my community ever thought the IRA like was how it was presented on the news. So it didn't really impact on us. If anything, what it did was it reinforced our view that we were somehow exiled in a way. Like we, we felt we were in a country that wasn't really comfortable with us and we weren't necessarily comfortable with it. Now, at that age, I probably couldn't think that through. But by the time I was, uh, I left school at the first opportunity and you go into the world of employment and then you start politically organising, then it became really clear to me that actually there was a serious problem here. There's a serious problem with how Scotland deals with its Irish community. There's a serious problem with how we deal with the conflict that was happening, how we discuss it, the terms that we're using. And a real problem as well is people feeling like it was, they weren't able to say actually, wait a second, like, we do not agree with this presentation of what's happening here, and we think the IRA is fighting a just uh, campaign for national liberation, and we view it very much in the same way as we view James Connolly in 1916, and loads of ways, the, and I'm sure people have said this, that the, the hunger strike was like our generation's 1916. It was that big a thing for us. It was like a, such a huge event in our lives that uh, it changed things. It changed things in a way that we were then prepared to force the issue. He's saying, no, we're not going to accept the way you're talking about this. Like, we're going to give a counter-narrative, which is about saying that the IRA are fighting a legitimate war. Jim, I've got another wee one here that's asking, when you were organising all of your marches, did you receive a lot of backing from around Glasgow, like other bands and communities, or did it feel that you know, you were just doing it all by yourself. No, we were getting a lot of, a lot of support. I mean, the, the march couldn't have happened at any stage without the solidarity of bands in Glasgow or in the west of Scotland. Uh, that's just the truth. Like, one band through here wouldn't have been able to sustain it. Like, the calling march had to be done on a bigger scale just because of the sheer level of opposition. Like, if it was only one band and 100 people, it would have got smashed at the first opportunity. And so we relied heavily own solidarity for the bands in Glasgow and and not just Glasgow but the that the West of Scotland, Lancashire and different places as well over the years. Uh, so that was absolutely vital. That's not to say there wasn't any issues and, and disagreements in terms of political strategy and direction and what have you. Of course there was and they're all legitimate and you know some things would be right on, some things were wrong. But we absolutely required their support. And even when the march was banned, it's important to say that when we done the illegal march in 93 and the Polish sent horses in and all the rest of it, we had a flute band on that as well, even though it was like a really sort of short, small scale. It was important to us that if we were doing it, we did it right. Like it didn't just look like a bunch of guys out trying to close a road on a Saturday afternoon. So we had a flute band there and the Sons of Ireland for Glasgow came through and did that, putting their members at, at serious risk as well. And 
it wasn't necessarily a popular thing for them to do well in other bands either. Again, because they felt by that point it was probably jeopardising some of their own parades. But fair play to the Sons of Ireland. But for all the bands, I, I'm really thankful for any the support and the bands, all of them, who over the years, the 20 years of the Conley March came through and supported us because we wouldn't have been able to do it without them. Like. And finally, Jim, you know, we spoke about Conley and the hunger strikes, but what's your own thoughts and perspective on modern day politics and modern day, you know, republicanism? No, I mean, I think, um, if I'm honest, I think republicanism's in a bit of a bad way. It's, it's fragmented to the point of being, like, difficult to see how it could be put back together. Uh, not just in Ireland, in Scotland as well. Um, and again, I, I mean, that that was predictable. We all spoke about the likelihood of that happening. One of the most amazing things about the IRA and the Republican movement, I suppose, was managing to keep that coalition together for so long when clearly you can see that there's so many... Um, different sort of perspectives and different people for different backgrounds, different politics, different motivations that were involved in it and have went different directions. So to keep that all together for so long has been, was, I think people look back and think that's pretty remarkable in itself. Um, in terms of now in Scotland, I mean, I'm probably consistently pretty um, Skeptical about the idea of political parties. Like I am, really very uh, keen on political parties, and that's not to say somewhere in the future that I wouldn't think it would be a good idea. But I don't think for working class people at the moment, people say that I'm like naive or uh, idealistic for wanting a republic, and that we need to just vote for the SNP to get whatever they want, and then maybe we'll get a republic in the future. I personally think it's naive and idealistic to think voting for a political party is going to improve the lives of working class people. There is no evidence that's going to happen at all. It's a complete distraction, I think. So that leads me to the point of we're, we're focusing completely on Connolly community class, and everything we do is about that in mind. It's like, how do we return to Connolly not by looking for answers for today's political problems, but return to Connolly as an, as an inspiration to us, as somebody who we can try and like learn from and get a bit of his attitude, a bit of Connolly's confidence in working class people. We need to try and regain that and recognising that working class communities have changed, but my God, they're still like, people are desperate for a bit of politics or desperate for change. And... At the moment, there isn't really anybody offering that. And I think it's a really dangerous vacuum that if somebody progressive doesn't fill it, the right will fill it eventually, I think. So everything we do is, is around about that. It's about orientating our activities towards working class people and encouraging them to self-organise. That's the other thing about it. It's not about the common society. It's not about what well, I think. It's not about we're encouraging people. Once people get things started, we're like, then you run with yourself. Like, you did. we then need to try and create one big organization. We didn't need to be trying to tell everybody to stick to the same line on every single position. It's just about trying to make baby steps, I think. And then somewhere in the future, maybe that can be joined up in some sort of way. But that's the way I see it. In terms of republicanism, it's I think the important thing for republicanism is to stick to the basics. Like, and I really do think that that means having a much more overt anti-sectarian position. So any anti-sectarianism has to be dealt with head on. Like, it can't be, it can't really be tolerated, and I think it is tolerated too often. So the Congress Society is really clear. Like, we are trying to build alliances as much as we can on the basis of like equality and accepting principles and non-discrimination and all the rest of it. 
that has to be at the very core of what Republicanism is doing. It isn't any good people like shouting and bawling about the IRA and being a Republican and then going voting for a monarchist party or something. I mean, what's, what's going on? Now, people need to really, if we're Republicans, we need to establish how few there is of us and then we need to try and get ourselves organised. Just to say a big thanks again to Jim for taking the time to come on and speak with us. And I hope everybody that's tuned in enjoyed that. And I again, just big thanks to all you guys for, for tuning in to us. We're sort of rounding up our wee series that we've been doing in the, the anniversary year of the hunger strikes. That was our second last episode. And we're rounding off the year, hopefully in the next probably couple of weeks we'll have the final episode where we'll be speaking with Bit McFarlane which I'm sure everybody that's been tuning in um, will be looking forward to that one as well so aye, just a big thanks guys and hopefully we'll be back with you in the next couple of weeks Cheers